thank you, worship team, for leading us to the throne of grace. One lesson that I feel like the Lord has been teaching me recently is the resiliency of the human spirit. When I think of my children and some of the disappointments that have been represented of the church family, stories that we've heard of people who had expectations, things they were looking forward to, and then watch those things go as the calendar turned and see those things be left behind. I'm reminded about the fact if you define resiliency as the capacity to recover quickly from difficulty, that I'm amazed at how the Lord instilled in us an ability to be resilient. As a Boy, I can remember uh, watching the Challenger spacecraft with a bunch of classmates, watching the, the first teacher go up into space. And I remember in the days after the tragedy where the Challenger shuttle erupted in front of our eyes, you heard afterwards people saying, will we ever go back into space again? Or in the days after September 11th, the question, will we ever get on an airplane again? The, the, the questions right now, where, will our kids ever go back to school again? There's... There's so many questions that, that are difficult right now, but one of the things that's amazing to me is that you think back of the tragedies that have erupted in our world, that the human spirit, when it is entrusting itself into the care of a God that loves it, has been able to overcome so much. And this morning, I want to celebrate with you the ability for us to be resilient in the care of our Lord. And so I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer as we lay aside our expectations, as we commit ourselves to saying, Lord, we trust that you've cared for us in the past, and we trust that you are going to do that again. And I'm going to ask for you to come, even if you're weary, if you're overburdened, if you're heavy laden, you're hopeless right now, I'm going to ask you to join me at the throne of grace and for us to just pray And for us to say, Lord, would you be my strength? Especially because for some of us, if we're honest, we don't feel very resilient today. But we can find ourselves resting in his strength. Would you join me as we go before the throne of grace? Lord, we love you. And we thank you for the fact that when we are weak, you are strong. Lord, I thank you that you promise us in your word that In this world, we will have trouble, that we ought to be people who counted all joy when we encounter trials of every kind. I confess to you this morning, Lord, that that is hard for us to do. But I want to thank you for those who've gone before us that have shown that there is a pathway for it, even in the midst of crisis, to find joy in the midst of pain to have hope even in the midst of circumstances that seem bleak. And today, I celebrate the fact that I've seen glimpses of that in the lives of our church family. And I pray that that glimpse of joy in the midst of pain would define what happens in our community for people to truly find hope. I pray for those who each day get up and put themselves in harm's way, those who are caring for us, first responders, medical professionals. Lord, we thank you for them. I want to pray, Lord, that your hand of blessing would be upon them. I also want to pray today for those who are sick, for those who are in hospital that are are struggling through, whether it's related to this current crisis or those who had procedures and 
things that have been pushed off because of this, Lord, would you protect them? Would you be their good physician? Would you remind them that you know the numbers of the hairs on their heads, that you knit them together in their mother's womb, and that today they can still find care and comfort in the hands of the good physician? Would you comfort those who we love, that our hearts are heavy for, that are physically struggling? We also pray for provision today, Lord, that we recognize that for some in our church family, that this last week was one that represented uh, painful realities for their bank accounts, the reality of their lives, looking at what maybe they had depended upon in their past. And yet, Lord, we thank you that you are our provider. And we ask that, Lord, you would continue to sustain us. Lord, at this moment in our lives, we look at you and we recognize that you are our hope, that you are the source of our courage, that our expectations of maybe what this spring was going to look like have proven not to live up to what we anticipated, but that's okay. And I thank you, Lord, for the fact that you're good, that your love endures forever. And this morning, as we study your word together, I have found such an encouragement this week from being able to just sit and to study really the footprints of people who've gone before us, who who are in the crucible of life and, and on the fulcrum of deciding if they're going to trust and fear man or if they're going to trust you, Lord, that there are so many examples in your word of people who chose to make you the most important thing about them. That people stood up, like we'll watch Peter and John today, who just stand up boldly in the face of unimaginable consequences for them to just stand up and to be able to say something so simple, like how can I not speak of what I have seen and what I have heard? And so Lord, I pray for courage. I pray for strength. I pray for resiliency, the kind that doesn't come from us just trying harder, but the kind of resiliency that comes from individuals, men and women, children, teens, youth, moms, dads, grandmas, and grandpas choosing to just say, Lord, we trust you. So I thank you for this morning. I ask that in all of the places that people have gathered together that are listening to this, watching this today, that, they, that you would be praised, that you would be honored, that you would be lifted high. In Jesus' precious and holy name, we pray. Amen. One of the stories that has stuck with me in my life was something I've shared from this pulpit before, but I feel like the Lord's been teaching me something different through it. And it was on a time in, in Liberia, West Africa, after st stepping out of a church service, there were some boys who were fighting over the bones from the meal that I had eaten earlier that time. And I've, I've shared it partially from here, thinking about what it means to be compassionate towards someone but, but I was reflecting on that journaling recently, just thinking about the fact that this, this boy takes up this chicken bone and he shows me, we just sit down together and he just shows me how you can swallow this thing. Now, I'm not recommending you try this at home, but, but I want you to think for a minute with me about what he was doing there. What he was communicating was that after the Civil War in Liberia, they had no food. They, there was a statement there that they used to say, you see a monkey in the tree today, you see a monkey in the pot tomorrow. They, they shared stories of, you know, one person has a bag of rice, we all have a bag of rice. They were, they're starving. And, and yet what he said was that, that they had figured out a way to get nutrients 
out of a bone. And, and at first it's, it's, it's humbling and shocking, but it also tells me something about that man. And that is that he was somebody who was willing to do whatever it takes to survive. And, and there's, there's something about him saying this to me on that day where he wasn't sharing it with me ashamed. He was actually sharing it with me because he was suggesting maybe this would be something that I could do as well. And, and, and I want you to catch today as we study together in God's word, Acts chapter four, uh, at the beginning of these verses, we're going to see a shift happen in the narrative in the book of Acts where, where we've seen the church in its early stages and now it's going to to transition into a time where we're going to start to see more persecution happen. We're going to start to see more reasons for there to be individuals on the outside to say, we want nothing to do with this. And, and we want to do what we can in our power to squelch the message of the gospel of Christ. And, and what we're going to see from Peter and John is that we're going to see these individuals that, that choose to do something so resilient, so, so powerful that in the face of direct persecution and accusation, they're going to stand up and they're going to boldly declare the truth of God's love for those who are even accusing them or were attacking them. And I hope and pray as we study God's word together today that there's this, this simple truth that comes to the surface. And that is for those who have heard God's voice in their life, that they cannot stay silent about it. Peter and John had seen Christ at work. They, they'd been a part of some of the powerful things that had happened. Three years, they went to school with Jesus. And now they're going to stand and they're going to declare in the moments after a miraculous healing of a man who had been lame from birth, they're going to declare to those who are choosing to say to them, you need to stay silent. They're going to say to them, hush, be quiet. What they're going to do in response to that is they're going to say, I can't be silent because of what God has done on my behalf. I hope you have your Bibles and invite you to turn them on and to join me in the book of Acts chapter 4. And what we're going to see here in this early stage of the church that kind of like taking water to an oil fire, those who are going to try to squelch the movement of the gospel are going to do these kind of half-hearted things. They're going to attempt to stop it. And like that oil fire, it's going to spread like crazy. And we're going to see even amidst the times when people are trying to dial down the volume of the church, it's going to be doing nothing but just the opposite of that. It's going to be turning up their voice in the community. And we're going to see exponential growth in the church because God was at work in and through them. I pray he does that with us here at Hope Church. I pray he continues to use us to be people who refuse to be silent because we ourselves have experienced the voice of the Lord in our lives. Beginning in Acts chapter 4 and verse 1, I'd like for you to read along with me. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came up to them and they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. This, this early thing picks right up with where we left off last week, that that Peter had just preached this message that was a bold message, a declaration of the gospel 
to the very individuals that were involved in putting Jesus on the cross. And he didn't pull any punches. He spoke truth. And, and all the while, there's this great image of this man that's behind them that had been healed miraculously. That's celebrating the fact that he went from, from being someone who was on the outside to now being able to experience this new freedom of life that had been given to him through the healing power, not of Peter and John, but through the healing power of the Lord Jesus Christ at work in and through this man. And so you have this as the backdrop. And now these individuals are saying, what can we do to stop it? Did you notice in the text that it says that they were annoyed? Uh, it doesn't just say annoyed. It says those who are a part of this, the, the Sadducees, that they, that they were greatly annoyed. I can't help, help think of like the road trip, you know, the, maybe you never did anything like this, but in my, my road trips as a kid growing up, my, my siblings, we always played the I'm not touching you game or the invisible line that you couldn't reach across. But, but you know, when it turned into greatly annoyed was when dad turned around and said, don't make me come. You guys know what I'm talking about. So here, this annoyance that, that happens is that these individuals are watching what is happening and they're afraid that it's going to turn into a movement. And so what they do is they, they arrest them they put them in custody overnight. But in verse four, it begins with this conjunction and it's a, it's a beautiful one. It says, but many of these who had heard the word believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. So, so now the church has grown. So we're anticipating or guessing that this was over 10,000 people now that have joined this group of people that are part of the movement of Christ, starting with the death of Christ and the church is growing exponentially. And so, so here they're trying, they're annoyed, they're trying to silence them. And this, this leads us to the first point this morning. And that's one that reminds us of God's tremendous power and his authority. Nothing silences God. There's nothing that can silence what he wants to do. It doesn't matter if it feels like it's impossible. It doesn't matter if there's things that people do to try to get in the way of the voice of God. Nothing silences him. Sometimes doing good things ends us up finding ourselves in bad situations. I think Peter and John were in one of those right now. They're, they're in a difficult situation. And, and it's helpful for us to know. And I want to remind you of this church that, that it's partially because they did the right thing that now they find themselves in jail. And instead of allowing that thing to be discouraging to them, instead what they choose to do is to stay on mission. That, that for some, I believe that, that we may have been taught when we first came to Christ or when we heard about Christianity that coming to Christ was going to solve all of our problems, that our lives would be easy after doing so. I want to promise you that coming to Christ solves your biggest problem, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. Remember what I said earlier? that we're warned that we are going to encounter trials of every kind, that, that life this side of eternity is going to be challenging. Peter and John happen to be arrested here, and they're going to face a trial that's going to be very intimidating. I can't even imagine what this meant for them. But, but what I love about the text in verse 4 there is that it kind of sneaks in this statement about the fact that the church is still a movement. It's still growing, that there's nothing that could get in the way of the gospel. It goes on to say in verse five, on the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem 
with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. We, we don't know those names personally. Maybe some of them are familiar from your biblical knowledge, but this would have been an incredibly intimidating group for the disciples who remembered that Jesus was placed in front of that very high court just weeks before this. And now the Jewish high court consists of over 71 members, 70 elders according to the pattern of Numbers eleven sixteen, And it's dominated by the priestly Sadducees and the and a minority of Pharisees, and they represent mainly lawyers, scribes, legal individuals, and they're, they're ready to take these men down. They're doing this trial because of the fact that Peter had been a part of a miracle and then preached a message of hope, and they were weighing this to determine if this was of God or not. It says this in verse 7, and when they had set them in the midst and then an interesting way to describe it. They, they stuck them in the middle. You can kind of picture these men standing around them. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. We, we know that Peter had received the Holy Spirit at his point of salvation, that he was there at Pentecost. And now there's this special movement of the Holy Spirit inside of him. He says to them, rulers, of the people and elders. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, but that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well, did you catch it? He gives glory to Christ. This isn't exactly one of those arguments that gets you out of trouble if these people are threatening you. In fact, this is a lousy argument to get out of getting to their good favor. But Peter doesn't seem to care about it. What he seems to care about is speaking the truth. And you remember from last week, if you were with us, that we talk about doing this in Jesus' name, by the authority of Christ, in the power of Christ. If Christ were here, we believe he would have done this. And you and I have that same ability to do things in the name of Jesus. And here, under the pressure and the crush of those who would try to silence them, they say this truth. And then we get this very interesting insight. It says, they said to them, And, the, and it says this, it says, um, God raised him from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. And I can just picture him pointing to the man who had been healed. And then in verse 11, it says this, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. We don't use this language very often. I think of foundations and essential elements of building, that this is the most important part. It could be describing the capstone as well. It, it's, it's a statement that's saying the most important piece. This is essential, that without Christ, nothing else matters. And he calls him the cornerstone. And then he says a verse that might be one of the most offensive verses in our culture today. One of the verses that when people hear it, it it shocks them because of how blunt and yet how clear it is. 
And yet we're not ashamed of this verse because it carries with it both the good news of the gospel, but the painful reality of the gospel. It says this in verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This leads us to the second main point that we must not forget this morning. And that is the good news of the gospel contains very hard truths. In order for us to have the good news of the gospel, we have to recognize that there are some rough parts of this, that, that we have to accept that there's a need for us to be born again, that we're in need of salvation from the Lord, that we need the hope that can only come from him. And here in this statement, I'll reread it again in verse 12, and there is salvation or literally to be made well, a person can only be made well and in no one else. There's no other religious pathway to come to this conclusion. There's no other path of goodness or righteousness in our own strength. There's, it's literally ruling out one of the premises of our society that says, as long as you're a good person, as long as you're sincere, actually saying just the opposite of that. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is a hard truth. That is a truth that motivates me to be a part of the, the, the mission that we heard about earlier in the service of what God's doing around the world to advance the gospel. I want to participate in that sacrificially because I can imagine that there are people who are going to die who have never heard the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That breaks my heart. When I say to you that the Lord Jesus Christ is the most important thing about me, the fact that there are people in our world today that have never heard his name breaks my heart. And it ought to break yours. That this incredibly offensive, what might appear an exclusivistic and narrow statement has to be put in the context of the the man who, what we're told in John 3, 16, that God so loved his world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's a promise for you. And Peter and John knew that that was a promise for the very men that were in the room. And I, and I want you to catch, this is really cool, that, that we know that, that at least one of them that, that was a part of the follow-up discussion ends up being, being so included in the Christian church family that they're able to share what happened behind closed doors, that maybe that was later on the Apostle Paul, maybe that's another believer, Nicodemus, or someone else who was a part of this inner group of religious leaders that heard this really hard message and maybe they heard it for the very first time that they said, maybe God's speaking to me. And what we know from previous verse four is that there would be some of these individuals, some 5,000 people who'd become believers on this day in history. And, and so perhaps there were a number of these 71 members that stood back and heard this truth. What we know is that by becoming Christ followers, the message of the gospel is not always easily received. In fact, the Lord Jesus said in the book of John 15, 18, he told his disciples, he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And he goes on that in that passage, just telling us the truth that, that to be a Christ follower is not going to be an easy path because of the fact that 
there's a world that's around us that doesn't want to hear the bad news of the gospel. But when we accompany that with the good news of the gospel, it can change their lives. Goes on to say in verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. It's kind of unfair to say that Peter and John were uneducated men. They were probably common. But I believe just because of the fact that they didn't have a degree on their wall from the rabbi school doesn't mean that they hadn't been sent to school. In fact, for three years, they sat at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. They watched him pray. They watched him interact with people, love unloved people, care for the needs of others, to, to, to at times be the suffering servant in front of the needs of those who desperately needed to see his love. They went to school, just a different kind of school. But it's more than just the fact that they're overwhelmed. Remember they said that about Jesus, that he speaks as one with authority. So they're standing back and they're saying, who are these guys? Where did they learn to do this? But it's important for us to remember as well that they were also speaking through the power of the Holy Spirit. They had the indwelling power of God within them. I like the way that G. Campbell Morgan puts it in these words. He says, Christ was in the men and speaking through the men. And the similarity with which they detected was not that lingering from contact that a lost teacher of a lost teacher, but that created was created by the presence of the living Christ. They, they saw Christ in them and, and they speak of it. Like we, who are these guys? Where did this come from? How does this happen? These are fishermen, right? And it leads us to the third point, And it's one that I hope gets a little personal for us. Silence on our lips implies silence in our hearts. Right now, I can't think of another time in history when the world around us needs the hope of the gospel. I, I've never been in a time in history where I see people who have desperate need for it like this. I don't know if you have either. But, but what we know historically is that there were people who'd heard this message and and their response back was either indifference or it was opposition. In fact, pick back up with me in verse 14. It says this. It says, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. These are the Sadducees again. They're, they're standing and they're, they're here trying to, to make sense. of How do we silence these guys? But they, they have nothing to say. Verse 15, but when they had commanded them, to leave the council. So they, they kick Peter and John out and then they confer with one another. This is that point where it's pretty cool that we actually get the insight of what was said behind closed doors. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another in verse 16 saying, what shall we do with these men? For that notable, notable, that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we can't deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone about uh, anyone in this name. So, so they know they can't prove against it. You know what's amazing for me to think about? Is that they couldn't go get the body of Christ. They couldn't dig it up and, and say, here, you talk about the resurrection. They, they had no body. They had no, no ability to prove that this was not true. They, they're looking at a man that they had all seen for 40 years, 
that was lame. Now he's healed. They don't know how to respond to the gospel. So what did they try to do? They tried to turn down the volume of the gospel. We're going we're gonna to silence it. And in their own words, in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. This is so important for this message this morning for you to get this. If that had worked, we have no idea how fast the growth of the early church would have grown. It might have gone from rapid fire to a trickle if the disciples had chosen to live in fear, that they chose to be silent, they chose to be mute on the most important thing about them. And what grieves me when I repeat this third point, silence on our lips implies silence in our hearts is what, what grieves me is that there's Christ followers that have this hope inside of them, but they choose out of fear or indifference or a lack of compassion that they choose to say, I'm going to be silent on this matter. You know, it's amazing to me that what they chose to do was that they chose to try to turn down the volume of the gospel, and it just didn't work. In fact, historically, when it comes to directly opposing the truth of the gospel, those who have persecuted the church, like I mentioned earlier, like like a a grease fire with water poured onto it, what it does is it spreads. Uh, There was a, a tragic story last year, a couple years ago, that I read about at the Golden Lampstand Church in Shankai, Providence in China. You may have seen these pictures, but on one Sunday, they had some 50,000 Christians who were fellowshipping together in this, this beautiful building. It's, it's a gorgeous building, and you can just picture them praising the Lord, even in a difficult context. And, and then just a few days later, through dynamite and bulldozers, that building was raised to nothing. It was destroyed, completely crushed. And there were other churches throughout that region that had been completely destroyed. And I wonder what went through the mind of the person who made that order. Did they, did they think for a minute that by destroying the building of the church or keeping people from having the ability to, to meet together in a church building was somehow going to stop the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the work of Christ, it just couldn't happen. And so they thought something that was dead wrong, that by destroying the building, somehow they could end the work of God in the lives of these individuals. And just like every other church that I've been around or heard of these stories, when persecution comes to intense levels, what often happens in those who are persecuted is that they are resilient And they respond under that pressure the way that Peter and John did in this text. They they choose to stand up and, and we see this in verse 18. It's so beautiful what they say. So they called them and they charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. And then verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Verse 20, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Verse 20, I'm going to go back to that. And I want you to just meditate on this truth with me. It's so powerful. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. 
Is that your story today? That you have been so impacted by Christ that you can't but speak about it? Now they get to add something that, that we don't all get to say. We may not have seen Christ work his miracles, but we have it recorded in front of us in God's word. And then beyond that, that, they, that we've heard his word in our life tangibly, that we've experienced his truth. And it's funny, it's funny today, I've been in so many contexts where people want to talk about, what are you watching? I think it's funny, Netflix or Amazon Prime, or what, are, what do you binge watch? And it's almost with an evangelistic fervor that people talk about, what are you watching? And I, I can't help but think for, for us today that, that, that this, this example of these guys is they're like, man, I've seen this and I want to share this with you. I, I want you to know that this is so real and it goes so much beyond entertainment. It hits the core of them and, and they're really willing to die for it. You can see it. And, and we're going to see this play out as the church becomes more and more attacked and persecuted and, and there's so much more that's going to come. But in the midst of it, they just refuse to set aside the name of Christ, to set aside declaring it proudly. It's an important side note here that, that we are called as people to submit to the laws of those who are in authority over us. In Romans 13, 1 through 7, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, it's, it's essential that we understand that we are under authority and it, it is legitimate to break those laws when those laws require, not just permit, but when they require us to disobey the Lord. Later in the book of Acts, we're going to see in Acts chapter 5, 29, the statement, we must obey God rather than man. That's always our standard. But we are people who find ourselves under authority, but also people who maintain our standards. I love this story that uh, came out of um, Fred, the story surrounding Frederick the Great. He had invited his generals, we're told, uh, together for a social gathering, but one of them, Hans von Zeiten, declined because it conflicted with his church commitments. He was an elder in his church, and so it was a social gathering. He chose not to show up. And then at a later gathering with these generals, who are extremely important men, his fellow generals uh, made light of him, um, and Frederick the Great was there. They, they mocked him for the Lord's Supper and his duties, and, and, and at some point, he, he kind of snapped. And, and we're told historically that he stood and he said this about his faith and about um, what he believed in. He said, my Lord, he's speaking now to Frederick the Great, my Lord, there's a greater king than you a king to whom I've sworn allegiance, even unto death. I am a Christian man, and I cannot sit quietly as the Lord's name is dishonored, his character belittled, and his cause quite, um, subject to ridicule. With your permission, I shall withdraw. And there was silence because those other generals stood back because they knew that he had just said something that really put his life at risk in front of Frederick the Great. But the way that history tells us is that he responded with nothing but respect. As we look to apply this truth to our lives, I want to ask a few questions that I think are really important. Even though this, this idea of the gospel could be containing ideas that are offensive or the feel narrow or exclusive, what about it continues to allow us to understand it as the truth of the good news of the gospel? The second question I want to challenge you with this morning is, why does attempting to silence the gospel often lead to advance the advancing of it? Have you noticed that in history? Have you noticed that in your own life, that, 
that it is in persecution at times that the gospel thrives. The third thing is what does it look like for us to potentially be indifferent to the gospel? This has been very convicting for me. What is it that I allow to turn down the volume of the message of the gospel in my own life? What, what am I ashamed of? What am I afraid of? What do I fear? And if you're doing that, what does it look like for you to learn from Peter and John a boldness that looks at the very accusers that put the Lord Jesus on the cross to be able to say that I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. The last question is, what are you allowing to silence you from sharing with others what you have seen and what you have heard? Another way to word this, we did this as a pastoral staff team this last week, because we just shared with each other, what, what are those things that you've seen God do in your life? What, what is the works that he's done on your behalf? And to be able to just share like Peter and John did, we, we can't do anything but to speak the truth of what we've seen and what we've heard. I, I want to close with this really powerful quote from William Barclay, which he describes what resiliency it took for Peter and John to stand before the Sanhedrin on that day. When we read the speech of Peter, we must remember to whom it was spoken. And when we do remember that it becomes one of the world's greatest demonstrations of courage, it was spoken to an audience of the wealthiest, the most intellectual, most powerful in the land. And yet Peter, the humble Galilean fisherman, stands before them rather as their judge than as their victim. But further, this was the very court which had condemned Jesus to death. Peter knew it, and he knew that at this moment, he was taking his own life into his hands. But what we accept is that he was willing to do it because of the fact that when a person has heard the voice of God, the unsilenceable voice of God, you can do nothing but to speak of it to a world that desperately needs it. Please join me. In prayer. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. I thank you for the fact that it is the word of life. And I pray for, for each one of us that we would take time this week to reflect on what it means to have people who went before us, who chose to not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Lord, I thank you that you are the source of our resiliency. Lord, I thank you that you are our source of hope that you are our, our Father that loves us and has chosen to seek and to save that which was lost. I pray that, that this morning where we are separated in physical rooms around Northeast Ohio, one of the things that we thank you is that we have gathered together today in your name. And as we close this service out in worship, Lord, I pray that you would receive our praises that we would sing to you as we have an audience of one today to bring you the kind of glory and honor that you deserve. We love you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.